So, Thanksgiving weekend. And, and we've hit the hinge point in the Gospel of John. You remember how, how this, like, this is all the first whole pile of everything that Jesus does, the signs of conversions, where he's saying, hey, do this, do this, I fulfill this, I fulfill that, do you believe it, do you believe it, do you believe it? Chapter one, laid everything out, this is all the whole deal. And now we come to the hinge point, the sense, kind of the center of the book, where, where Jesus, things change now. It's kind of his public stuff is gone. And the whole rest of the book is just kind of the last week after this of, of Jesus' life. It's, it's the hinge point, And it's, it's a good passage to hit on Thanksgiving Sunday because in it, down in the middle of it, as we'll see, there's this encouragement to thank God that Jesus is the light of life. Jesus is the light of life, and for that, we can find the depths of thanksgiving on this Thanksgiving weekend. But here's the deal. i got to confess to you that, that this passage was a tough go for me this week. It really was. It was, it was quite, honestly, it was, it was quite a bit of a challenge um, because I don't like some of the things that Jesus says, and I for sure don't like some of the things that Jesus does. And it, it caused me to have a bit of a wrestling inside my heart and inside my mind and to ask myself this question. Are you really a Christian as the Bible defines it, Alan? Are you really a Christian or have you sort of bought into this uh, socially constructed niceness that Christians are supposed to be and that all too often Christianity has been reduced to? And so what I want to do is... <laughs> since I'm such a nice guy, I want to invite you into, first of all, this, this thanksgiving to thank God that Jesus is the light of life, but also to enter into this wrestling and ask yourself this question. Are you really a Christian as the Bible portrays a Christian? Or, or have you sort of got sucked into this, this social, I don't even know what, syrupy maple syrup thing? So we're going to thank God that he's the light of life that Jesus said and great thanksgiving, no doubt, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life and anyone who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, we do. Thanksgiving. But am I really the follower of Jesus as I should be? Is my faith expressed in everyday life as the Bible challenges us to face it. All right, let's, let's, let's get into it. My struggle, as I said, uh, really is because uh, Jesus portrays here what I consider to be a really, really strange kind of love. It really is. Let, let's read the first seven verses. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with a herd. That doesn't happen until the next chapter, but he's just giving you a heads up. And so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, this wasn't just the news of the day. This is obviously a kind of a request. And when he heard this, Jesus said, oh, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he did the reasonable thing. 
He stayed where he was for two more days. And then after a couple of days, having received this urgent message, then he said, okay, guys, let's go to Judea. Let's go to where Lazarus is. Now, you, you notice as we went through there that, that the Apostle John, uh, he goes to great lengths to point out that this is a relationship of love. This is a love-filled relationship. He keeps saying it. He, he talked about how you'll marry. You know, she's the one that later on is going to anoint his feet and do the thing with her hair and all this kind of stuff. And, and two times in here he says, you know, the one that, the one that you loved is sick. Didn't even have to say the name. It's obvious that it's Lazarus because Lazarus was so close to Jesus' heart, which is kind of interesting that, that you can feel like a nobody in an unknown name and still be deeply loved by Jesus, kind of like Lazarus was. And so... And all of these different things, but he just stays there. I think that's a really weird action on the part of Jesus. The one you love is going to die unless you do something. Okay, thanks for the news. I'm going to hang around here a little bit longer. To me, that doesn't look like love like I'd expect it. And it's for darn sure. Doesn't look like love when you get down to verse 15 and Jesus says, oh yeah, actually I'm glad I wasn't here and I'm glad he died because now you're going to learn a good lesson. Like, I don't know about you, but that's like, what? What? It's just a strange kind of love. It doesn't feel like, it doesn't seem like Jesus loves Lazarus and it certainly doesn't feel like or look like he loves Mary and Martha who are trying to nurse their brother back to health and nothing's happened and nothing's happened and desperation reach out to Jesus because he's healed a whole bunch of people and we know he cares about Lazarus so let's get him in here because we don't know what to do. And the message comes back and no Jesus. Well, did you tell him? Yeah, I told him. What did he do? He asked for another glass of wine. What? Where is he? Yeah, he, he just said, oh yeah, don't worry about it. This, this sickness is going to last to death. So uh, let's have some lunch. <laughs> what Jesus displays here is an absolutely different priority than I would have liked him to have displayed. I would like him to say, is that right? Okay, here I come. If drop what we're doing. Let's go, boys. We're going to go and heal this guy. But he has a completely different priority. His priority is verse 4. He says, hey, you know what, here's the deal, which what's going on here is that um, I'm going to be glorified, or the Father's going to be glorified, and I'm going to be glorified through it, because my emphasis here, what I'm really interested in, is not how well you feel like you are loved, not how well uh, you think I'm a great guy for reasons, Lazarus from the deal. What I'm all about is giving glory to the Father and glory to the Son, and that's going to take some suffering on their part. Hold. That isn't the Jesus I like to sing songs to. The Jesus says, look, what's going to happen here is I'm going to be revealed as Lord over life and death as I fulfill my Father's will. And that, they tell us, verse 4, is the key to understanding this passage. And honestly, honestly, I find that rough. Because he has a very different priority than I do. He puts himself in the Father's glory at the center of this whole event. You know, I was helped, I was helped to bring to a definition of this. I don't even know. Discomfort is too mild of a word. Disagreements I have with God. He's never listened to my advice. 
I was helped with this by, by uh, you, you might have heard of this, it's called, how it, it's, the, it's the, the, uh, the contrast between Christianity of the Bible and what's called the moralistic therapeutic deism that we tend to practice. How is that for a mouthful? Moralistic therapeutic Deism. I, I first heard Tim Keller is where I first heard about this, but Matt Chandler uh, pointed me actually to the original source, and it comes from a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith, who, who wrote the book um, Soul Searching, The Religious Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers uh, from a few uh, years ago. Um, and he wrote, he wrote this, this book. Uh, just uh, complete, I haven't read the book, I just read Distillation of the Book. I can't read everything I should read, but I haven't read it. But, but here's basically what he says. He says, listen, this is what most people kind of believe. He said, put, they surveyed teenagers, but you know what? I don't think there's a whole lot of difference. Plus, it was 2000 and whatever, and they're all adults now. And number one, number one, he says, the first thing about this, this whole thing about, about moralistic means, you know, right and wrong. Uh, therapeutic means make me feel good. Deism, do you know what deism is? Deism is that there is a God, but he doesn't do much. He kind of set things up well on the clock and let it go. And then that's, that's deism. There is a God, but he doesn't have much to do with life. Okay? So, number one, there is a God who exists, and he created and ordered the world, and he watches over human life. Okay, so far, so good. That's a good thing. That's what the Bible teaches. No problem. But then we start to get into trouble. Number two, God wants people to be good, to be nice. And to be fair with each other. God doesn't want us to be good. He wants us to be faithful. He doesn't want us to be nice. He wants us to be forgiving and self-sacrificial and gracious and humble. As it's taught in the Bible, and here's the key, and in most world religions, that's where we get this whole deal. Like, you know when you boil it right down, Jesus... Missionary, whoever, you know, whatever, all kind of the same, because in the end, it just, it's just about being good, nice people. That's kind of what it is, and, and every religion kind of teaches the same thing. That's moralistic. Just be nice. That's how people are going to know you're a Christian. Just be nice. Could you, could you be nice? Third thing, the goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's therapeutic. That, that I, just need to, I just need to be happy and not have sadness and be able to get through it. And, and boy, I better have good self-esteem and we better make sure that everything we do and everything we say and everything we teach and everything our kids listen to and all those things, they just, you just need to feel good about yourself. Because that's the goal of life. Because when you feel good about yourself, then you can be happy. And you don't have the stress of all of this other stuff. That, that's, that's a therapeutic thing. God, God, you know, just feel good about yourself. God made you good. Number four. God doesn't need to be involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. In other words, you can just go ahead and live your life and I can go ahead with my life, with my dreams and my goals and my purposes and my wants and my this and my that and, and God doesn't care. He just sent me to do those things and I can carry on and doing that. Oh, but if I get into a bit of a tight spot, then I can say, yeah, Jesus, come and help me. So God just kind of minds his own business. That's deism. He steps back and lets me just do whatever I want, however I want, whenever I want, until I run into trouble and then I can kind of invoke the, the great genie in the sky and, and life will be good. And fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. Therapeutic. 
Well, he was a nice guy. He was a good guy. Cut his neighbor's loan. And so, you know, it was kind of rough in the last little bit, but they're in a better place now. And we can feel good about that. And if, if you're a nice person, you can feel good about that too. That's not Christianity. But I've got to tell you, man, I can get sucked into that. I can get sucked into, you know, Jesus who just, you know, wants you to feel good about yourself and loves you and it's going to be okay and all those things. And people say, you know, they deconstruct their faith. Well, yeah, it's because that's their faith and it should be deconstructed because it's a pile of manure. Because that's not what Christianity is. At least not according to the Bible. And when I have that kind of moralistic, therapeutic deism, I'm mad when Jesus doesn't come to heal Lazarus and save a whole pile of suffering. Or when Jesus doesn't come to your friend or my friend or my brother, or my sister, or my child, or my workmate. You know, Alyssa Taylor, hi Alyssa, Alyssa's one of our online people. She posted, you know, this meme, you've probably seen it around. But it, it kind of hints at this. Things Jesus did not say. Number one, follow your heart. But Jesus says, no, 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 you follow me. You follow me. Number two, be true to yourself. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself. Not be true to himself. Deny himself. Number three, believe in yourself. But Jesus says, no, you believe in me. Number four, live your truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Yes. Not your truth, me. Number five, as long as you're happy. And Jesus says, what does it profit a person if he gains the whole world and is happy and loses their soul? You see, honestly, honestly, when I come to this text and I read what Jesus did and I feel what I feel about Jesus, what are you doing, man? This, this guy, you could have easily saved him. Think about the sisters. When I, when I do those things, I realize that, that, that my attitude and my, and my thoughts and, and so often my words and my reactions when I'm, they're not guarded and I'm not thinking Christianly because I'm not in my office, when I'm just kind of encountering life, oh, man, can I get sucked into moralistic, therapeutic deism and not Christianity. Because you see, what I need to come to the reality is that I am not at the center of what goes on. And neither was Lazarus, and neither was Murray, and neither was Martha. God, and his glory, and his plan, and his perspective, and his desire, that was at the center. And I have to somehow get my head around this reality that the ultimate expression of his love is God's plan and not how I feel even though the suffering is terrible that I might be enduring. And the center of it is God forming me into his image 
so that I can enter into eternal life and he be given all of the glory. And that sometimes means that God leaves us and leaves me in the midst of my struggle and in the midst of my grief to achieve his purposes for his glory and ultimately for our good. But I got to tell you, although I don't need to, that's pretty tough to take sometimes. So Jesus waits. He hangs around for two more days. You see, in Jewish tradition, you had to be like dead for three days until you passed the smell test. Oh yeah, he's dead. And after three days, then okay, then for sure, they're dead. And so Jesus wants to make sure that everybody knows this guy is well and truly and really dead. And then... Jesus faces death. Let's pick it up in verse 8. So he just said, okay, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, just a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. Remember, they actually did it twice. Looked at that last week. And you're going to go back there? You're going to walk into the face of death? You're going to put yourself in the center of people who want to kill you? Are you nuts? And Jesus answers, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? And anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, and then they have no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go and wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. We don't have to go. Let's just kind of hang back. It's okay. No problem. He's on the mend. Jesus speaking and speaking of his death and his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. And they don't want to go there because they know that not only are they going to kill Jesus, but man, they might get caught up in that as well. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad. I'm glad I wasn't there to heal him so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Let us also go, that we may die with him. Lazarus is dead. You're going to die. I guess we'll die too. They will kill you. And it's here we begin to see the kind of love in Jesus that we've come to to experience and to desire when we face our problems. Because Jesus is now going to take the next step to laying down his life. Because as we'll see from here on in, we get to the end of the chapter, and go into chapter 12, that now these guys are really serious about killing Jesus. Now they begin to make specific plots. Now they say, hey, you know, they're going to take away this. We don't kill this guy and kill Lazarus too. Everyone's going to go after him. We're going to lose our nation. We're going to lose our temple. We are going to lose the whole thing. And Jesus understands this. And he goes back to the place that we're going to stone him twice. They're going to kill you, Jesus. And Jesus, in response to them, saying, we're all going to die. Jesus says, you know, if you're going to take a walk, it's, it's best to do it in the daylight because... You might stub your toe in the dark. What? <laughs> Do you ever wonder about Jesus? You know, can you imagine being a disciple? We're all going to die. Yeah, you know, if you're going to go for a stroll, just make sure it's daylight. 
What, 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 are you, what are you talking about? He's saying, listen. I understand that your life is surrounded by darkness. There is sin, and there is evil, and there are threats, and you get afraid, and there is sickness, and people that you love die prematurely. But I am the light in the midst of that darkness. I am the light in the midst of this dark world. And I am the one who will dispel the darkness. I am the one who's going to deal with sin and evil and sickness and even ultimately death. So I understand that you're afraid of the darkness. You're afraid of my death, and Thomas, you are right. You might well die too, and you're afraid of that. And so it's reasonable that you would be. But I have come to show you, and if you stick with me, I will now show you who I truly am. You will see that I am the victory over grief and sorrow and sickness and death. If you come with me, if you stick with the light, if you stand with me in the midst of this great tragedy and this great sorrow, if you follow me, you will see that I am the light. But if you don't follow me through this darkness, you will remain in darkness. And you remain seized up with fear. And you will never see the big picture of who I am and who the Father is and what his plan is and what true love really is. If you're afraid and you give up on me and you stay here, you won't see the light. But if you will follow me, you will see that I am the light of life and you need not fear. And that, you see, is the cause, the ultimate source for thanksgiving, that Jesus is the light of life, and he carries us through the darkness. We sang it in a row now. When the darkness closes in on me, the Lord holds us tighter. And so Jesus sets off, and we find him in the face of disappointed grief. Let's pick it up, verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, the place of death, the place of the guys that wanted to kill him just, just a little while before, a few months before. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha. Why? To comfort them. Because when your brother dies, you want comfort. And everybody knew Lazarus had been sick, and now he's dead. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary, look at that, don't miss this, but Mary stayed home. I'm not going. That guy could have come. I'm not going. But Martha, Martha, she goes out to confront Jesus. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever it is that you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother is going to rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day, and it's going to be awesome, I guess. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will live even though they die. Praise God, thank Jesus. And whoever lives by believing in me, they will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. 
I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here. And she said, and he's asking for you. He knows what's going on. He knows you're, you are some tick. You, would, you wouldn't come out. You're so filled with grief and you're so filled with frustration that you can. He, he's calling you in the midst of your difficulty with him. He's calling you out. When Mary heard this, she got up and she quickly went to him. Now, Jesus not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. Jesus kind of hangs out there, calls her out of her spot to where he is. And when the Jews had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, same thing, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. It's interesting, now look at how different Jesus' response is to Mary the feeler rather than Martha the confronter. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he open the eyes of blind, which only God can do? Could not he open the eyes of blind? Couldn't he have stopped this man from dying? Yeah. Couldn't he have stopped this man from dying? What we see in Martha and Mary is disappointment, accusation, and maybe the threads, just the threads of faith remaining. We see in the actions of Mary who stayed home and Martha who comes out and confronts Jesus. She comes out and what she's saying is you've got to enter into what's going on here. I mean, this is like some sterile reading that we read, you know, a couple of thousand years later. But this is somebody whose brother she had been nursing for, who knows, for months or whatever. And the desperation reaches out to the guy that she knew had healed all kinds of people and he didn't show up. And she's grieving and she's ticked off. And it's like, you could have changed this. You've healed all kinds of people. You could have healed our brother. We sent for you. We asked for you. We waited for you. We sang a song. You're never going to let her. Never going to let. Never going to let. Never going to let me down. We sang that song. And you didn't come. And he's dead. And you could have stopped it. But you didn't show up. I thought you loved us. We know those questions and feelings, don't we? Yeah. Because people let us down. People that we thought were loyal to us. People that we thought loved us. People we married. People who were our parents. People who were our children. People who were our best friend. But worst of all, we know that feeling with God. I thought you loved me. I thought you were the healer. I thought you were the compassionate one. You could have stopped this. And you didn't. You didn't. 
Understandably, these sisters are caught in the past, in the present, and what could have been. And in their opinion, and maybe mine too, what should have been. God, you could have. God, you should have. And I don't understand. So I'm just ticked and full of grief. And then she says these words, just, they're, they're almost sad. But even now, God will give you whatever you ask. I, Jesus, I'm, I'm hanging on by a thread. And I'm disappointed, and I'm ticked off, and I don't understand, and my brother's dead, and I thought, but somehow, somehow I've got to hang on to this because I've, I've come to believe that somehow you're the answer, but I sure don't see how that's going to work out for me right now. And so, and so I'm going to say that you can change it even now, even though he's dead. But man, I don't know if I really believe that because we'll see a little bit later on that she doesn't want them to open the tomb because it's like, hey man, he's, he stinks. And so there's faith and there's non-faith. There's trust and there's non-trust. Oh, man, do I know that. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but I got, I got no other choice. I got to believe. So here we go. And in the face of this sorrow, Jesus gives reason for ultimate thanksgiving. I'm the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me will live, will have abundant life even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, that lives it out, not just that, you know, things Jesus never said, but, but the Christianity that the Bible teaches, the faith that the Bible challenges to live out, the faith that the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone can give us the strength to carry on when the darkness is all around us. Whoever lives out this belief, they'll never die. Jesus wants them to look ahead to the future, to the day of resurrection. And Martha says, I know that that grand day is coming. But Jesus said, no, Martha, you don't understand. You can live in that hope and that reality right now. You can bring the future forward into today because the light of life is here. Reach into that future and bring in that hope. Reach out and bring me into the midst of this darkness. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a place for rage and sorrow. In the face of sickness and death and darkness. What do you mean rage, Alan? Well, I want you to look at verse 33 and verse 38. And you might see some pansy translation of the word of what is put there like... He was deeply moved in spirit. <laughs> Translator Sarah Rudin says, listen, that's a compound word that's used to describe an animal's cry when it's in distress. When you just shot it or you're just gutting it or it's trapped in the trap and that cry, that, that anguish, that, 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 that howling that will haunt you all your days, that's what that word is used for. This deep animal cry of distress. And so she translates it, Jesus howling deep within. 
Rick Watts says that Jesus is looking at the reality of faith and suffering in the death of his friend and the suffering of those women that he loves, and it enrages him. It enrages him. The word actually means he was, he was shaking with agitation. God hates death. God hates suffering in your life. It came about because of sin. And, 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 and sometimes I wish that he would just solve it like that. And sometimes he does. But honestly, you know what? Truth is, most of the time he doesn't. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't enrage him when you suffer. And it doesn't make God shake with anger when people die out of time. And this enraged Jesus was shaking with agitation. And then he enters into the sorrow of these sisters and he weeps with them I think that that's kind of interesting because Jesus knows what he's going to do isn't that kind of interesting I mean he could have just said hey don't worry about it this kind of takes me off Lazarus come out but he doesn't he enters into their grief and into their sorrow and into their confusion and he weeps with them because he knows. And his suffering with them is saying, I know, I understand, and I know that this is hard. But there's a bigger picture here, and I've got to show you the bigger picture. But that doesn't mean that, that my heart doesn't ache for you when you're in the midst of this darkness. And so Jesus weeps. And then there is the result of faith, testimony, and community, as Jesus says. Jesus wants more, deeply moved, enraged, shaking with agitation, howling like an animal inside of his heart because of the pain that he knows that you're experiencing. And so Jesus, shaking with agitation and howling within, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. And here's Martha. Yeah, I believe God can do, God can do what you ask right now. But I only half believe it. Because I don't think that he's alive. I don't think you're going to do anything great here. I just think it's going to be misery and it's going to stink. It's going to stink because he's dead. Because he's been in there for four hours in the heat. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you even in the midst of your sorrow and grief and frustration and anger and desperation and disappointment, didn't I tell you that if you believe, if you stick with me the light, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? Yes. And so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. It's kind of interesting because Tom Wright suggests that Jesus hung back there, you know, for those two or three days and he stuck back because he was praying to the Father, seeking the Father as well. I don't know, speculation, but at some point, Jesus, you know, prayed to the Father about this. And he says, I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing around because I want them to know that you, God Almighty, are involved in this situation in what I'm doing here. I want them to know that 
and believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, in this voice that we give thanksgiving for, Lazarus, come out, forge forth. And the dead man came out. And his hands and his feet are wrapped with strips of linen. And a cloth was around his face. He said, the grave clothes on. And so Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. <laughs> Jesus begins with the testimony of the Father. Because you remember all through John, this whole thing, it's testimony. And who are the witnesses? And, and so what Jesus is saying is, listen, I'm going to do something here. And I'm going to call upon the testimony of God himself. That I am the one who has command and lordship over even death, let alone sickness. And so, Father, I'm praying just because when this happens now, they'll know that it's you and me in unison. They'll know that you're giving testimony that I am the one who brings life. Because I am the light of life. And then Lazarus gives his testimony. And it's a living testimony. It's a testimony of somebody who was dead, who has been in the ultimate victim of the darkness and comes forward and says that I am now alive and Jesus has done this. It's the living testimony. And Lazarus says, I call my name and then I ran out of the grave and I ran out of the darkness and I ran into your glorious day. I ran into the light because you are the Lord of life. And for that we give thanksgiving. And we hear testimonies of people who, who lived in darkness and even death and it feels like death, but somehow they stuck with Jesus with that little bit of faith that they had. Even now, Jesus, I know that you will do, you can make the difference here. You can do it, Jesus. I kind of know it, but I don't really know because I'm not sure you want to take this stone away. But this is all I got, so I'm going to hang on. And when they were able to hang on, they came out and said, somehow I lived. And it hurt and it was sorrowful, but somehow I lived. And for that we give thanksgiving. Because Jesus is the light of life who conquers darkness and brings us life. And then Jesus does this, this kind of neat thing. He invites the community to join in the resurrection and the celebration of life. He says to the people standing around, go take the grave clothes off. Because sometimes we need help with that, don't we? Sometimes we kind of know that, you know, God has brought us through this, but that, that was such a miserable experience. That was such a bitter time that, 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 that I, I've got a lot of anger in me. I've got a lot of blaming other people in me. I'm carrying with me a whole pile of shame. I'm still a little bit afraid. I dove into that dark and I wasn't dragged into it. And I've got a whole pile of guilt that I'm dragging with me because, you know, Jesus did this, but I know I still did that and I'm still faced. All of these things, those are great clothes. Fear and shame and guilt and blame and accusation. And unforgiveness, they're, they're, they're grave clothes. And sometimes we have to help each other strip those clothes off. Because sometimes our face and our eyes are still covered and we can't see to do it. And so Jesus invites those that loved Lazarus, go and help him strip those grave clothes off. 
Because he's not a dead man anymore. He's a living witness that I am the light of life. So this is a challenge for me. Because I'm always putting myself at the center. And I'm always wanting Jesus to do what I want him to do, when I want him to do it, how I want him to do it, in my life and in the lives of the people that I care about. But what this passage challenges you to say is, listen, that's not what Christianity is. That's not what a follower of Jesus is. A follower of Jesus doesn't put you, Alan, or anybody else except Jesus in the center of what should be and purpose and desire and all those things and glory. No, no, it's God. And when I put Jesus at the center, God is glorified. Death is defeated. The grave clothes that restrict me can be stripped away and darkness dissipates and I can dance in the light of life. And that, my friends is reason for thanksgiving. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Almighty God, I want to thank you that <laughs> you are so patient with us. And no matter, no matter how long we walk with you, we have, I have so much to learn and so much to be challenged. And, and sometimes I'm faithful to what this faith really is. And sometimes I'm sucked into... I don't know, what I want it to be, what society wants it to be. I don't know. But belief and trust in you, this whole thing about giving you everything, is not just to be a song we sing, but a life we lived. And belief is not just words that we say but a life we live. And so I'm thankful, God, that you're patient with me, you're patient with us, and you lead us along in in these struggles. And I am so very thankful that at times when we are angry, confused, disappointed, that you invite us to come to you, even when we're like Murray, and we we don't even want to talk to you. So we don't pray and we don't read and we don't fellowship and we just kind of withdraw. And with compassion in your heart, you say to our brothers, to our sisters, go, go, go and get them. Go, go get her. And you walk us through the struggle in, in ways that are appropriate to us. With Martha with this confrontation and, and just the, the, the truth back and Mary comes with her broken heart and you just weep with her and I'm so thankful God that that's how you respond to us however it is that we approach you and that you speak words of life and you hold us tight when the darkness tries to grasp us and pull us back. And you dispel the darkness and you breathe life. And we give you thanks that you are the light of life in all of its splendor.
and we ask you to help us to give you all of the glory for that great truth. Amen.